So, a little recap. Last week we were talking about the Tree of Life and Communion. If you guys want to see a really cool video, I decided not to show it this morning, but there is a cool video on the Bible Project. So if you go to YouTube, my keyboard's right up here by my mouth. If you go to YouTube, you can type in uh, the Tree of Life Bible Project, and there was a really good video that you should check out. So if you get a chance, that's my little plug for the Bible Project video. But I had to choose between one, uh, or I had two, and I had to choose one for this Sunday. Um, so if you want to audit a class, if you're taking a college class, how many of you guys went to college or took a, like a university course? Have you ever seen somebody audit your class? Do you know what that's about? Auditing is when you go to the class, but you're not like registered in the class to do the homework or the assignments. You're just sitting in the lecture getting the information as the teacher presents it, but you don't have any of the responsibility or the homework, and therefore you also don't get any of the credit for that class. But you can get the information that is offered in your class. And that's called auditing. It's a way to learn the material, get the knowledge, but without the work. See, this is possible with a college class. When you want to take a college, or if you want to audit a college class, that is okay. But where it's not okay is in the Christian life. See, the Christian life, you can't audit it and be effective. You can't just take in and process all the information and teaching and uh, Bible studies or the daily bread or go to worship and not actually do any of the homework or put pen to paper and take on some of the responsibility of that knowledge and to actually be, make it a part of your life. A Christian life auditor, they may be knowledgeable and inspired, and it, even, uh, and it even seems like they're uh, excited about it all, but they notice that it seems like it's really impossible to make any serious changes. It's because it's knowledge that hasn't been placed into life application. And you see, transformation in your life through God's Word is actually activated by obedience. So as you take in the information, that's the first step, you actually have to activate that transforming information by applying it into your life. Obedience is really just choosing to follow the rule or the law or the authority placed over you as best as you can. That is obedience, is to do what has been asked of you. And this obedience is generally revealed through something we don't like. It starts with the T word. Do you know what the T word is? Testing. And so here's, a, here's my little joke about testing. There was a college student who was writing his final exams. And as they write their final exams, sometimes they would have multiple classes right at once in the auditorium. And they'd be different classes. And they'd have different professors just sit in that exam and just monitor it for cheating. But they might not actually be the teacher or know those students. So the student is writing a, his final exam in this large lecture hall. And the teacher tells everyone that time's up to stop writing. But he notices one student sitting in the back corner is still scribbling away. And he was sure to call out. He said, no, time's up. No more. And he still sees the student as all the other students are going in to hand in their papers. He's still scribbling frantically to finish his last little bit. And finally, he stands up and he makes his way to the front to hand in his test. And as he gets to the front, the teacher recognizes him or sees him and says, I saw you in the corner. You were the one that didn't stop when I said the time was up. 
we cannot accept your exam. You will get a zero for this. I'm going to have to take your exam, and you will not get any credit for it. And the student looked all indignant, looked the teacher right in the eye, and he said, excuse me, do you know who I am? And the teacher said, no, no clue. I don't teach your class. And he said, good, lifted up the papers and shoved his in and ran away. See, the testing, <laughs> it's not until you actually put pen to paper and actually show that you know that information, that it's become a part of you, and you're able to reproduce the right answer or put that information into action or plays through the test. But none of us really like tests. How many of you look forward to the spelling bees or the math tests or your finals? Not many. I was not one that looked forward to that, and testing has become something that many of us try to avoid. And so hopefully today, as we talk about what it means to be waiting on the Lord through a time of testing, I thought I would show you the video that Bible Project put out on testing, because why not? So if you take a look, I'm going to show you this video that they put together on biblical testing. The story of the Bible begins with God creating a beautiful world and then sharing it with all of his creatures. And he appoints Adam and Eve to rule it on his behalf. And God gives them access to his wisdom and life, but then tells them that there's one tree they can't eat from because it will lead to death. So they have a choice about how to rule with God. This kind of feels like a test. Well, that's because it is a test. But isn't that kind of cruel for God to test them? Well, not all tests are bad. Let's say there's a king who chooses you to fulfill a royal task because he wants to know if you are trustworthy. Well, I guess that's a test, but really it's an opportunity to do something important and noble. Right, but then let's say there's a rebel who hates the king and you, and he tries to convince you that you would be better off not doing what the king asks. Well, the rebel is setting a trap. Right, so a test could be an opportunity or a trap. And the difference is whether the one testing you has your best interests in mind. I see. And both types of tests appear in the beginning of the Bible. God tells them to eat of the tree of life and not the forbidden tree. Yeah, this is God's test of loyalty. God wants to rule the world with humans as his partners, which means they will need to trust his wisdom over their own. But then a rebel comes and tests them to eat of that other tree. Right, the rebel seizes this opportunity and twists it so he can lead the humans into exile and ultimately death. He turns the test into a trap. But after the humans fail, God promises that one day a human will come who will pass the test and defeat the snake. And as the story moves on, God gives a couple named Abraham and Sarah an opportunity to trust him by leaving their family behind to go to a new land where God will use them to restore his blessing to all people. So this is a test. And at first things go well, but Abraham quickly fails. He lies to protect himself and then he and Sarah scheme to get a son their own way by abusing one of their servants. Definitely not passing the test. But God doesn't give up on Abraham. He gives him one final opportunity, a test to prove his loyalty. God asks Abraham to go up onto a hill and offer his son as a sacrifice. I can't imagine a more intense test. And Abraham does it. But in the last moment, God stops him and provides a substitute animal in the place of his son. 
God then says he will fulfill his promise through Abraham's family because he passed this test. So Abraham passed this test, but he hasn't proven to be a fully trustworthy partner. We're still waiting for someone who can pass the ultimate test. Yeah, and as the family of Abraham grows and becomes a nation, God continues to test them. Like when the Israelites wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They have lots of opportunities to trust in God, to provide water or daily bread. But they instead blame God and even say that he trapped them in the desert to kill them. And so the rest of Israel's story in the Hebrew scriptures is pretty much the same. The Israelites don't trust in God and his promise. They're not loyal. And eventually the whole nation fails. So humans have an amazing opportunity to partner with God, but no one is really qualified. And so all of this brings us forward to Jesus. There's a story where Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without food or water. Ah, yes, the wilderness. And there he meets a sinister creature who tries to trap him. But Jesus trusts in God's wisdom. And he passes the test. Then later there's a story about Jesus going to pray with some friends and God commissions him to go up to Jerusalem and to give up his life. And so he goes. And on the night of his arrest, Jesus took his friends and went to a garden. And he told them to pray because tonight, he said, is the great test. And he prayed to God, please let this test pass from me, but not my desire, rather may your desire be done. In this garden, Jesus shows us what passing the test looks like. He trusted in God's wisdom. He loved others more than himself, and he confronted evil with good. Even though it cost him his life. Right. Jesus offered his own life as a sacrifice to cover for all of the failed tests of his people Israel and of all humanity. Jesus passed the ultimate test on behalf of us all. This is amazing. but. That doesn't mean everything is gonna be great in our lives. I mean, let's be honest, we're gonna face our own tests every day. Right, Jesus said every generation of his followers would have their own tests that will force them to trust God in radical new ways. And these tests can be difficult and often painful. But remember, a test from a good God is an opportunity. This is why James, a leader in the early Jesus movement, said that we should be grateful when we face tests and trials because they offer us a gift. It's an opportunity to surrender to God's wisdom and to become more like Jesus, the one who loved us and who passed the test on our behalf. How many of us would struggle, or as we listen to that, struggle with the idea of thinking of testing as an opportunity to be blessed? Oftentimes when we see a test before us, we see it as the opportunity to fail or the opportunity to show that we don't really know what's going on or to kind of embarrass ourselves. We, we don't look forward to it. But think about it from the beginning of Genesis. God gave humanity the opportunity to eat from the tree of life, to be his image, not separated by death, and to live with him in this garden-like state, and to be his image bearers to the earth. That was the opportunity 
That is, uh, we, we think of uh, the negative, where we think of how they failed that opportunity, and so we think of tests as negative. But really, they're one or the other. It's an opportunity, or it could be a trap or something that hurts us. It's up to us how we respond into it. James, as they mentioned, we'll flip over to the book of James, chapter 1. It's a very f- famous scripture right near the end of the New Testament. Hebrews, James, First and Second John. James chapter 1, we're going to read verses 2 to 4 and then 12 to 18. This is how he looks at trials and testing. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Skipping to 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres, under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to, th- birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. James looks at testing a little bit different than I tend to look at testing. He seems to see it as a a chance for pure joy. When was the last time you were squeezed or tested in your life or in your relationship and you thought to yourself, pure joy? See, it's an opportunity. Trials are actually an opportunity. God doesn't even necessarily have to put you into them. People can use their free will to do horrible things or place horrible situations in front of you. They might lie to you, cheat from you, steal from you doesn't mean God's orchestrating this trial in your life. That's what James is saying. God doesn't make the bad things or test you with evil. There's evil all around you. And he gives us the opportunity to be obedient and to grow in our faith, or perhaps we can choose our own way and fall into that trap and face the consequences. See, trials, they're a pure joy when it reveals your spiritual condition is healthy. But a trial when it's not so nice and you realize what's on the inside and when you get squeezed, it can be something that reveals our spiritual condition is quite unhealthy with what comes up. See, have you guys ever heard of uh, uh, a refiner's fire? Like the idea of putting a metal into a super hot container and you heat up that metal till it turns to a liquid. And as you continue to heat up that metal, say gold is a common example, uh, the top layer becomes mostly what? What's on the top layer? The impurities, the fancy word, the dross. And so as something heats up, not only does the actual metal or gold inside get more pure, but the reason it's getting more pure by going through that heating process is the impurities rise to the top. They bubble up where you can scoop them off, pour them out. There's ways of separating them once it's uh, been separated from the metal through this process of refining. 
A common example that you guys may have seen uh, these days is actually thinking of like SEALs training. You know the Navy SEALs? You guys have heard of SEAL Team 6? You guys watch those shows? I loved the Navy SEAL shows and movies. That was something that I wanted to do at one time. And uh, when I was looking into what was involved to become a Navy SEAL, they have to go through something. Not only is there a hard process to get in, and then you have months of training, but at the end of those months of training, before you can still even become a SEAL, at about your halfway or two-thirds point, they put you through something called Hell Week. And this is one week where you might sleep but a three, four hours for one week span. They keep you awake for almost a week. And while you're awake, they make you lift the boats, carry the logs, do the sit-ups, swim the laps, do your push-ups, do your pull-ups, run the mile, and you do it all with your gear. Sometimes they will, you're allowed to eat. They actually break for a meal. You get a half an hour or 15 minutes for food, and you'd watch the, the, this was a documentary, but the seals would actually all be face down asleep in their food or next to their plate, and then they would come in the, the hall with guns blasting to wake them up and get them back out and run them for this whole week. And the process of that is to see who is trained so that when the, when the problems come, when they're under fire, what do you respond with? Do you give up? Do you complain? Do you uh, trash your team or get, get lippy with people? What, what happens when you get squeezed, when you're exhausted, when you haven't slept in days and your muscles ache? They want to see what you're made out of. Now, see that you have been trained to the point that your response is automatic. Your training now, whether a gun is going off next to you or not, is automatic. You know how to respond. It is natural. So let's look at two quick, uh, one quick story, and then we're going to look at one long story. We're going to be looking at Daniel 3. But before we do that, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. This is a... Uh, a, a part of the story of Israel where Israel has been in the wilderness for 40 years. They missed their opportunity by a test to go into the promised land. They, they, go, they arrive, they had left Egypt, they get to the border of the promised land and they send in uh, spies, one from each tribe. And the spies go in and they observe the land and they see that it's fruitful and blessed, but they also see some things that concern them. They see giants and warriors and they realize, nah, we can't fight them. And so the 10 spies of the 12 say, no, we can't do it. And two, do you know the two that were the good, Joshua, Caleb? They come back and they say, we can do it. But the people side with the majority and they say, we're, we can't go in. And God says, well, that was your opportunity to go in, but we see what's in your heart. They still didn't fully trust God that when they saw the giants in the land and the warriors... They saw them as bigger than what God was able to use in their lives to be able to take the land. And so they ended up wandering in the desert for 40 years. There's a real parallel of this testing period of 40. We have 40 years in the desert with Israel. We have 40 days in the desert with Jesus as he's tested. What does Jesus need? Bread and water. What does Israel need? Bread and water when it comes in manna and the rock. And there's these parallels as they get tested going through the, the wilderness for 40 years. And what comes out? Well, let's read Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you 
and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. And so during that 40 years, God was letting the dross come out. He was letting the things that they thought they had down pat. They, they thought they had faith. They thought they weren't selfish. But all these things came up, complaining, gossip, idolatry, selfishness, anger, fear. The refiner's fire brought out all the negatives of Israel. And it had to be dealt with. That generation had to be able to deal with that and face that and come to terms with it. So what? The next generation, their children, could go and actually take the promised land and have a home. So it has to be dealt with. That's one story of a refiner's fryer for 40 years. The second one, we're going we're gonna to camp out in this one for a little while. If you have your Bibles, you can read, but if you don't, just listen. I didn't put the, the, lyric, or the, the uh, Bible verses up on the screen, so you can just listen if uh, you don't have. But we're going to flip over to Daniel chapter 3, Ezekiel. Daniel. I'm actually going to grab a seat because we're going to be reading a story for a second. So here's another story. This is taking place in Babylonian captivity. Israel has gone uh, from the promised land, this is many generations after that nation has actually gone into the promised land, and they led into their lives and into their culture all the things that God told them not to. Idolatry, they led in, uh, that one of the big accusations is how they abused the poor and the foreigner. Um, they had uh, incorporations of these false gods of the nations around them. They had some of the more horrific practices were like human or child sacrifice, offering your life or your kids' lives to other gods as a, as a way of appeasement. And eventually got to a point where God says, no more. You've reached a point where you cannot be my representative as, uh, of Yahweh anymore, and I'm actually going to disperse you. You're, I'm going to let you be conquered. And Babylonia, uh, Babylonia conquers Israel and they uh, used a tactic where they wouldn't just conquer you and wipe you out, but they would also take some of your best people and they would spread them out all over the lands so that they would uh, incorporate you into their culture. They wanted to culturally assimilate Israel because that's one of the most effective ways of actually eliminating a culture that you don't want is to have them replace it with a different one. So how do they assimilate them? They ship them all over and Daniel and these three guys are uh, shipped to Babylon, and they're trained to become advisors for the king, wise men, actually positions of honor. So they are quite intelligent, and they obviously uh, pro proved themselves reliable enough to the Babylonians that they were willing to have them as uh, their advisors from Israel. And so uh, these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and their buddy Daniel, are in Babylon. This is where the story takes place. We don't know where Daniel is in this story. It doesn't say why Daniel isn't at the statue, but uh, we do have these three characters, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, starting da Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. 90 feet high image. So that word there, image, 
is actually the same image or same word as used when God says, do not make any images or graven images, do not bow down and worship them in the Ten Commandments, or idol sometimes it's translated. And so King Nebuchadnezzar basically makes a big idol of gold, ginormous, 90 feet tall, like how tall would you say that ceiling is? Uh, 30 feet, maybe? About that? So about three times the height of our ceiling, maybe? And he sets it up, and he puts it in a big plane for everyone to see, so everyone from around knows what's going on. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials. And they came to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. So he creates this large image, this golden statue. If you read the previous chapters, you'd know he had just had a dream about a golden image made out of different metals, and Daniel had helped interpret it. And it seems to have been self-fulfilled in that he shortly thereafter decides to build a huge image of himself and gather all the important people and say, bow down and uh, worship it. The herald loudly proclaimed, this is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the full band, we're going to list them, the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So he creates this image that is to represent himself and also God. We know right from the Ten Commandments that that is right at the top of the list of things that an Israelite does not bow down and worship. They have no part in making idols. They are their own, or sorry, they are owned by Yahweh. They are solely faithful to him. And here they are placed in a situation where the king is saying, bow down to this image of our nation and this image of me and worship it. Show your loyalty to me as God, not your God as God. And if you don't, we'll just burn you. We'll burn you alive. Therefore, verse 7, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. What a great way to be greeted. Nice to meet you, Brian. May you live forever. <laughs> you have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down in worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. They, give, they lay down the trifecta of accusations against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They say, they don't respect you, O king. They don't listen to you. They don't listen or respect your God, and they don't bow down and worship. 
And they lay down these accusations, and the king takes it really well. He says, you know what? It's okay. They can do what they want. No, no. The king is enraged. And furious, verse 13, with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, harps, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? So Nebuchadnezzar essentially assumes the position of God in their life. He says, I have placed you into a situation that due to my power and my prestige and my influence, you will not even be able to be saved by your God because I am more powerful than your God and you will not even be able to rescue. So don't waste your time trying to fight out of this. Just bow down and worship or you'll die. In verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. What a powerful response. It's polite, it's peaceful, but it's definitive. We won't do it. They didn't, they didn't go down and uh, stoop to the king's level and, and try and, you know, uh, bully him or say mean things or, you know, uh, shouting, screaming, no, you can't do this. They simply state that, no, we will not bow down, we will not serve your gods, and our God is bigger than you, and he is able to rescue us. Even if he doesn't, though, we still won't do it. See, when trials come, and in this case, it's about to be literally a furnace, what is their automatic reaction? They show what's on the inside. They have a place of honor and respect for the king's position. Even though he's doing horrible things and asking them to sin against their God, they still show the king respect. They still show him honor. They call him, O king. If we are thrown into the blazing, the fur, if blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of God you have set up. So they're about to experience the fire, and it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. Now, what's interesting is, I, I, it might not do, make a note of that in there, but it says his attitude toward them changed. Uh, I had a little note in my Bible, and it led me on a little rabbit hole about attitude. But that word attitude is actually like your countenance or your face, and it's directly related to the word of the image or the idol that he made. So here's an interesting concept, is that he creates this image to represent himself that is supposed to change the whole world as they come to him and represent uh, or uh, worship him as the representation of Babylon, his image. And it's not until he encounters 
the power of God in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that it actually changes his image physically. Not just the image. They were so unaffected by, uh, by his golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, it says, his attitude toward, changed towards them, but it was like his countenance, his very image changed towards them. See, uh, Nebuchadnezzar met their honor and their respect, but also their inability to compromise what God has asked of them. And it changed him. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing the robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Isn't it interesting that when somebody starts to get so enriched with themselves and so prideful and look at their nation as so great, that in the process of trying to eliminate these three men, he kills his own innocent guards who are following his orders. The, the respect of life has been lost, and he doesn't even seem to care or be bothered that the people following his orders are being killed. We need to be careful about letting pride get to the point that we don't see the value in others. So the three men were firmly, firmly or sorry, tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. It's interesting just a few, few sentences ago when they're back in the palace and he's putting them to the test, he says, what God can save you? And as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego literally radiate a heavenly figure that there is God's messenger, an angel, it says, is in the fires with them, is actually what changes him and he sees and he encounters this God and it says that he now calls them the most or the servants of the most high God. See when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the refiner's fire, what came out? God's messenger, his angel. Some say it could be a Christophany, it could be Jesus that was the angel of the Lord or the son of the God. Um, they they're, they're, it's not necessarily stated that it is, but the idea is that when they were in the refiner's fire, what came out was God's message, a messenger. See, when you squeeze an apple, what do you expect to come out? Apple juice. When you squeeze an orange, what do you expect to come out? Orange juice. When you squeeze a Christian and refine a Christian, what do you expect to come out? Christ. Christ juice. <laughs> See, when they go into the refiner's fire, 
unlike Israel that boiled up the complaining, the gossip, the idolatry, the selfishness, the anger, the fear, they represent an image of Christ when they're in the refiner's fire. We should be like that. We should be, as we're squeezed, what shouldn't come out is the anger, what shouldn't be coming out. If it's there, it needs to be come out and it needs to be addressed. But it's a good check if you notice that when you go into trials and temptations and things are not going well and you feel squeezed, if everything but Jesus comes out in those times, something's off. Verse 20, uh, 26 or uh, 25, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the uh, opening of the burning, blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies. Nor was a hair of their head singed, the robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. They're ready to go back to work. They don't even need to change clothes. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's commands and were willing to give up their lives rather than to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had a test put before them. For us, we'd be like, oh no, that's a terrible test. I'm going to get burned at the end of it. They saw it as an opportunity. They said, God will save us, and even if he doesn't, we will still be faithful to him and represent him well. And they had that opportunity to experience the blessing. And think about this. How many people know this story of their lives to this day? How many people throughout history have read this story in Daniel and looked at the, these characters as noble figures? They had the opportunity to exemplify God, and they were honored for it. And the same opportunity goes for us. It might not be as grand a scale that you're standing before a 90-foot gold statue with the whole band next to you saying, bow down and worship, and the king's threatening you with fire. No, it might not be as intense as that, but maybe your co-worker's in front of you and he's giving you attitude, or your kid, or your mom, or whoever it might be is giving you that little bit of like, oh, yeah, yeah, and you know you're getting prodded, and what wants to come out is snarkiness. What wants to come out is short-temperedness, impatience, selfishness. Maybe it's even more serious than that. But it's a good litmus test of knowing what's on the inside when you're squeezed. And so, this is my challenge to you. How many of you guys feel squeezed in life, at least in some way, shape, or form right now? I'm raising my hand personally. I feel squeezed right now. One of the ways to get through that, and this is just an aside, but it's through prayer. Our connection to God, it's like plugging in the power device, the light bulb, to the socket. The power is there. God is there. He is with you. He is talking to you. 
But prayer is what actually plugs you into that power source and connects you so that he can flow through you. When you feel like you're squeezed, it says, out of, you will be cut, flow, out of your bellies will flow rivers of living water, like Jesus will come out. But that can only come when you are connected to the power source. And one of the things that Brian is, uh, and the church is trying to uh, incorporate more and to offer more of is the opportunity for prayer, because we see that as one of the main sources to get you through these times of trial, that when you're filled up, you're filled up with the Holy Spirit, that, uh, that life-giving force. When you are squeezed, what comes out is the life-giving forth, force. So I'm going to invite up the band, and we're just going to take a moment of prayer, and we'll do a closing song here in a second. But I'm just going to op- lead us in through a prayer, and, uh, and you can pray along if you want in your hearts or however you like, but we're just going to take a moment of prayer here. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these wonderful examples you've given us in the Bible. You've given us these stories uh, that are truthful, that are honest about Israel's failures and, and their successes, and about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's trials and successes. And you give these stories to us that we can be encouraged, challenged, maybe convicted and changed. And Lord, I just ask that as we spend time with you, that we would connect with you. We would plug in directly to that power source, that we would be filled with your Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, each one of us have our own things that are squeezing us right now. And I just ask that you would meet us in this moment as we give these problems over to you.